Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. ETF, WTF, Bitcoin set for a new trading milestone. Test fire tensions, North Korea launches a missile from the sea. And talking turkey, from ships to farms, supply chain chaos could compromise Christmas. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. We've got another great show lined up for you this Tuesday. Let's call it a Tom Cruise Tuesday, in fact, where we delve into parts of the market some might call risky business. We'll speak to Bruce Richards of multi-billion dollar asset manager Marathon Asset Management to discuss a cocktail of risks, navigating inflation risks, supply chain challenges, investing in distressed assets and his top recovery trades. Plus, as I mentioned there, it's a milestone in the world of crypto top gun Bitcoin rallying around half a percent, as you can see, closing in on all-time highs as ProShares launches the first ever Bitcoin futures exchange-traded fund in the United States. Don't panic, we'll explain all, and we'll hear from ProShares Head of Investment Strategy later this hour too. Now, on Wall Street, we're on cruise control. The majors seeing all the right moves at pre-market, moving ever closer to records after the fourth day of gains for the S&P and the Nasdaq tech In fact, shrugging off the volatility that we've seen more recently in bond yields. European indices muted, though, as big firms caution on the pressures buffeting business. French food giant Danone says it's sticking to its guidance despite rising costs. Telecom giant Ericsson taking a Q3 supply chain hit and warning of a weaker market share in China. And a tech turnaround in Asia, too, in more ways than one. The Hang Seng closing at five-week highs, driven by a 5% rally in smartphone maker Xiaomi. It's promising to begin mass-producing cars by 2024. No mission impossible there. (laughs) Let's get right to the drivers. And we begin with Bitcoin Buzz, a landmark moment for cryptocurrencies as the first Bitcoin futures ETF starts trading today. Paula Monica is following the story for us. This is seen, and Paul, great to have you with us, as a huge stepping stone, I think, in the acceptance of cryptocurrencies by regulators. Um, But you've got to read the small print on this. Just explain what an ETF is on Bitcoin futures. Exactly, Julia. What we have now is a fund that will invest in Bitcoin futures contracts. So this ProShares ETF and others that might be coming out after it, they are not going to be investing directly in Bitcoin. You, if you buy this ETF, don't have ownership of Bitcoin. So that is one thing that I think any investor needs to do their homework and realize. But the good news is that more of these funds are likely coming. This probably opens the wave for several funds to eventually be approved by regulators. And also, this brings more regulation to an industry that for some novice investors, they may feel that crypto is a little bit of the wild, wild west, which I don't believe was a Tom Cruise movie. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that's going to be something that is good. So, you know, now you can have your crypto cocktail. Not a Tom Cruise movie yet, Paul. I'm sure you're giving him ideas there. What's it going to mean for liquidity? Because I think you raise a great point, which is for many people out there, they do see the crypto sector as the Wild West. Perhaps they can't invest in it, but they can invest in exchange traded funds. And if they want some access 
or at least something that mirrors in some way the underlying price movements of Bitcoin or Bitcoin futures in, in this specific case, this gets them access. What is the upside? What is the downside? Yeah, I think that the potential upside is that you do open the floodgates for more investors having access to cryptocurrencies who maybe previously had been intimidated. I mean, when you hear stories about how you need to have very high-powered, uh, fancy PCs or servers uh, mining Bitcoin and all the power that that entails, that's not something that your average uh, you know, retail investor may be wanting to do. But to be fair, I think that there are some who would also argue that this may not change the playing field that much because we've already had things like Robinhood and Coinbase and other brokerages that have also made it easier and more accessible for retail investors to buy Bitcoin, Ether, other cryptocurrencies. So yes, the ETFs do potentially make it even easier for investors, but it's not as if we had been in this world where the only way to access Bitcoin before having the ETF was to mine it yourself. You were able to buy Bitcoin at a brokerage account fairly easily. Yeah, and there's obviously going to be additional transaction costs when you're investing in an ETF or an exchange traded fund as well. So um, lots to consider here, but it is seen as sort of laying the path perhaps one day to seeing an ETF based on Bitcoin itself. And then the floodgates really open, I think. Um, Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. And after the opening bell today, ProShare's head of investment strategy, as I mentioned, will be on the show. So stick around for that. Paul, thank you. And we move on. Christmas shopping spree, more like a hiring spree. Amazon is looking to hire 150,000 temporary workers ahead of the holidays. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you on the show. Hey. Not only in a relatively tight labour market are they looking to hire 150,000 temporary workers, but they're willing to pay them to get them through the door. They really are. $18 an hour, which is more than its own minimum wage, right? $18 an hour and a $3,000 signing bonus. And for some of these jobs, depending on where they are in the country and what the job is, it's an additional $3 an hour on top of that. So this, to me, is really a sign of the competitive nature of the American uh, job landscape right now. You've got a lot of other companies that are hiring and going to be rushing to hire as well. So Amazon is getting out there ahead with the highest wage um, that I've seen for these temporary hourly positions. You've also got Walmart will be adding 150,000 temporary jobs. Target will be adding 100,000 seasonal jobs and 30,000 new permanent jobs along its uh, supply chain. Uh, P.S. Kohl's, Macy's, Nordstrom, right? So Amazon trying to get out there uh, and get the workers that it needs. It is an incredibly competitive job market. And some of the recent surveys, including from Indeed.com, which is a, you know, a job searching site, have found that the desire for seasonal work has actually been declining in the past few weeks. So there might be writing on the wall there that people aren't sure they want to go back to just a seasonal job in the middle of a pandemic. But Amazon certainly paying up in the hopes of trying to, to, to lure the workers there. Yeah, it's interesting. I just wonder how lawmakers will view this, because particularly for the Democrats, pushing for a, a higher minimum wage 
failing to, to tackle that. But seeing wages go up is a good thing. At the same time, there's been criticism of Amazon, whether it's a marketplace or not for much smaller businesses. In many cases, also it's competition. And if you think of the small businesses that we know are also having challenges in hiring people, how do they compete with a, a juggernaut like a Walmart or an Amazon that's willing to pay, you know, in this case, up to, to $21 an hour to get to get workers in the door? And to be honest, I mean, look, we have a real crisis in the child care sector right now, at least anecdotally, when you've got $12 an hour as the typical pay for a child care worker, $18 an hour even for temporary work at Amazon looks pretty darn good, doesn't it? So that keeps the pressure on certain parts of the economy uh, where the pay is just certainly not enough to lure new people into the labor market. I think you see job hopping when you see this kind of uh, uh, of numbers. We know that, that Walmart and others have been investing in their front end for several years with all mm. kinds of different perks and higher wages because they know there's job hopping uh, in, in retail simply going for the, for the highest wage. Uh, and now you're seeing some of that job hopping even across industries and sectors because uh, the free market at work here, I guess, right? I mean, you don't have Congress raising the minimum wage, but you have business raising the minimum wage because of supply and demand. They need the workers. Their wages rise when you don't have enough supply. Yes. I mean, we would have been cheering about this two years ago, and uh, I guess we are today as well. Pay some workers (laughs) some more money. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. To East Asia now, where tensions are rising following a new missile test by North Korea. South Korea says it appears the North fired a ballistic missile from a vessel at sea, possibly a submarine, into waters off Japan. Will Ripley joins us with the latest. Well, just moments, of course, after the United States says it would be willing to restart diplomatic talks over the nuclear program in North Korea. And then we see this missile launch. But there's some debate over whether it came from a submarine or a water-based platform of some sort. What do we know? Absolutely, because uh, back in 2019, Julia, North Korea launched a submarine launched ballistic missile from an underwater platform, but kind of, you know, in their state media propaganda made it look like it was coming from a submarine and it was later determined not to be. So if now this test did come from one of North Korea's relatively antiquated submarines, we're not talking about the high tech Uh, nuclear fleet of the United States or the UK and perhaps in the coming years Australia. But nonetheless, if North Korea does have the capability to launch a ballistic missile from its submarines, that just adds yet another potentially dangerous weapon to its already dangerous arsenal. It was just within the last number of weeks they tested what they claim is a hypersonic missile that can travel five times or more the speed of sound. China also denying that they tested a hypersonic missile, although it is uh, it is clear that China has already deployed those hypersonic missiles along with Russia. They're the only two countries that have that technology. Maybe North Korea, an impoverished tiny country with an oversized defense budget, Julia. Um, and so uh, obviously there are questions about what we're, what we're going to see in North Korean state media in the morning hours here, local time. Usually it takes about 24 hours after the rest of the world hears about a test before they hear about it inside North Korea because they want to make sure that all the images and video they released are vetted and, uh, you know, touched up if need be. But it'll be it'll be interesting to see uh, what 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 they show. And uh, as far as the United States is concerned and hopes for potential diplomatic talks surrounding North Korea's nuclear program, this is a pretty clear message. It is. And I mean, the timing of this is so unusual. Think about it. The two Koreas just just reopened their inter-Korean hotline. So they have calls every day in the morning and in the afternoon. So at 9 a.m., they have their call. And then an hour later, 
North Korea tests this missile, uh, possibly two. Japan says two. South Korea says they detected one and they're looking into it. Uh, and then uh, later in the afternoon, they're going to have their 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 phone call again. So it'd be interesting to see what the readout is, if they even release it, of what the conversation was between the guy sitting in the north, the guy sitting in the south. Oh, will they talk about the missile launch or will they just talk about the weather? Uh, another <laughs> really important thing that we just uh, heard out of Tokyo, Julia, is that the, the Japanese prime minister uh, is now using this North Korean launch as to kind of bolster his case for enemy base strike capability. That would mean that Japan, which has a pacifist constitution, could go from, you know, just trying to bolster its missile defense systems to uh, having offensive weapons that could actually go and destroy an enemy's base. And this is as Japan also prepares to put missiles and soldiers uh, on its islands that are just 100 miles from the main island of Taiwan, because concerns are mounting about China and its intentions in, in cross-strait relations. So you put the pieces together here. There's a lot happening in this part of the world. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of countries with new weapons and a lot of room potentially, Julia, for miscalculation. Yeah, and a great need for diplomacy. Let's hope about more than the weather gets discussed on that call. Well, Ripley, thank you for tying all those pieces together. We appreciate you. Thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A gang that kidnapped a group of missionaries in Haiti is demanding $17 million for their release. 16 Americans and one Canadian were abducted near the capital Saturday after visiting an orphanage. Haitian officials say they're working with the U.S. to secure the release of the group, which includes five children. CNN's Joe Johns reports. CNN has confirmed that the kidnappers here in Haiti are now demanding $1 million apiece for each of the 17 individuals they are holding. That includes possibly five children, one believed to be about eight months old. That $17 million is a significant escalation from previous demands by this group known as 400 Mawozo. They started very small stealing livestock, then automobiles, then kidnapping individuals off the streets. Now they are taking entire groups. We're told that the Federal Bureau of Investigation is working alongside Haitian authorities to try to resolve the situation. The bad news is it could take weeks or months. Big picture, the people here in Haiti are sick and tired of the kidnappings which have gone on on the roads for decades and they're demanding change. There is a strike going on here in this country by transportation workers who say the kidnappings must stop. Joe Jones there. UN health workers say three children lost their lives Monday following an airstrike near the capital of Ethiopia's Tigray region. State-run media reported that Ethiopia's air force launched an attack. Ethiopian forces have been at war with the Tigray People's Liberation Front for nearly a year. Myanmar has freed hundreds of political prisoners. State media reports 727 detainees were let out of two prisons on Monday. It follows the junta's announcement that it would release more than 5,600 people arrested for protesting against military rules since a coup back in February. Okay, coming up here on First Move, farmers in a flap. We're live at a turkey farm where they're working hard to make sure supply shortages don't ruin Christmas. We'll have the story on a wing and a prayer. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Call it a U.S. futures bash on the anniversary of a market crash. It's actually the 34th anniversary of Black Monday on Wall Street when the Dow lost almost a quarter of its value. No black, as you can see today, just green on the screen. A continuation of Monday's gains amid more positive earnings news. Dow component and COVID vaccine maker J&J. Little change pre-market, but raising full-year guidance. Meanwhile, blue chip Procter & Gamble beating on the top and bottom lines, but warning that price hikes can't make up for higher commodity costs that the company's facing. The relentless rise in commodities continuing to fly in the face of the transitory inflation argument. U.S. crude gushing up more than 70% year-to-date. Natural gas aflame up more than 90%. Food on fire too with oats feeling their oats. An 82% jump there. Cotton, an almost 40% rise. And of course, this is just commodities. What does all this mean for consumers and investors alike? Well, we can discuss with Bruce Richards. He's the chairman and CEO of Marathon Asset Management with $23 billion worth of assets under management. Bruce, fantastic to have you on the show once again. Um, Let me start by talking about inflation. Is this the big question that you're being asked from investors? How transitory is it? How concerned are you by rising prices? And what does it mean for for behavior and for our portfolios? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And yes, it's the number one question on people's Mm -hmm. mind. The number one question over this past year has been COVID and its related impact. And today it's inflation and its related impact. So we have CPI running at 5.4%. We have the cost of living adjustment passed through by the Social Security Administration that was just 5.9% for the seniors, which is the highest advancement of increase that we've seen in over 40 years. And we have producer prices coming in at at about 8% per annum uh, at the current pace. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Housing prices 20% up year over year, food costs up over 20% year over year, cost of an automobile up 8%, your fuel at the tank up 50%, and your heating bill, and with the winter coming in the coming months, probably going to be up 50 to 100% year over year, especially for those in the cold domain. So it's very much impacting the consumer. It's very much impacting businesses. Um, you know, the, tr- the whole discussion about transitory is an interesting one and something that's being propagated by the Fed. You know, I, I love this guy, um, the Fed president from Atlanta. Uh, President Bostic, or Rafael Bostic, he's got a transitory BS jar on his desk <laughs> that allows you that every time you mention that word in his office, you have to put a dollar in. And so it's not transitory. Transitory, um, you know, refers to something that happens in the short run. And this is something, especially with the supply chain, which can be with us for some extended period of time. It's impacting markets. It's impacting portfolio decisions. It'll impact investment returns. You know, I think you're sort of making the argument here. And actually, we tackled the San Francisco Fed on that point exactly. And um, she sort of said, we're trying to get away from that transitory word. But um, she also said that she didn't think that rate rises would tackle some of the price increases that we're seeing. And there's there's lots of different triggers and, and things that you can use, tools that you can use perhaps to rein in some of the, the free money that we've got sloshing around. From your perspective, if we are saying that, one, we think that they're going to be slow to raise rates for a whole host of reasons. And indeed, I think the impact it would perhaps have on the consumer, but also um, that these price rises are here to stay. How do you sort out those that can perhaps um, win in this scenario, can pass the costs on versus those that perhaps can't? Is that how we have to view the world when you're looking at I, investing? I, 
I think when you're looking at companies and looking at equities and looking at the credit side equation as well, it's really important. But to, to the prior point that you made uh, yeah. about the Fed, there's not much they can do. You know, coming into last year, the money supply M2 was at 15 trillion. Today it's at 21 trillion. The hmm. government between the Treasury and Fed has printed 40% more currency than ever existed before. And so there's a lot they can do, which is start the tapering and stop printing so much money. Um, and that will have a lot to do with the level of forward inflation. There's nothing, nothing you can do to take back time, but certainly will impact. And for all those um, you know, economists that think about monetizing our debt, it's a really bad idea for the middle class and the working class in this country, because it's eroding their, um, their ability to save and their ability to afford, um, you know, dinner and, you know, the trip to wherever they're going. So um, it's really important that we wake up and understand uh, the amount of money we're printing and the amount of money we're spending. Uh, and that all comes from Washington, you know, to the point of companies. Um, it's a very interesting discussion because there's companies that can pass through the cost and that you know shows up in CPI and companies that can't pass through the cost and that's problematic. Um, and so when you project forward uh, to the extent that inflation is going to start to slow the economy at some point in the future, um, that might be more of a problem. I know here at Marathon uh, we've kind of pivoted from distressed investing. You know, last year, the year 2020, was a record year of distressed capital raisings and, mm. and capital deployment. Uh, there was over 300 billion um, that was raised in the, in, the, in the markets with 500 billion of spending power for distressed, which helped a lot of these companies, you know, make it through their problems. But right now, today, we have at least a dozen, probably around uh, 18 term sheets in front of companies, companies that can't pass through the price increases that need a bridge um, to a stronger economy for their recovery. And that's companies in travel and entertainment and certain manufacturing um, businesses, even in healthcare. So um, it's a broad spectrum where inflation is hurting both companies as well as the consumer. And it certainly won't get better. It'll only get worse in this coming year. You know, you raised such a great point there, and I want to go back and talk about it, about the erosion of purchasing power when we're talking about rising prices for, for individuals. Um, we often talk about it from a market perspective and whether investors can withstand the pullback of, of monetary policy and all the excess support that, that the Federal Reserve in particular has provided, never mind the fiscal support that the government's provided. Do you think this Federal Reserve recognises the sort of risk reward of what they've provided and actually that perhaps the situation will look more stable if they do start to rein in policy, even from next month? It's a very interesting question, um, and it's a very large macro question to try to understand. Having said that, it's a catch-22. Fed starts to raise rates, it will slow the economy, and, and so they understand that. Um, they don't raise rates, inflation will continue to gravitate higher. Um, so I think they're in a very tough position right now, um, and some of it's been created because of course, we needed the stimulus and the monetary policy initially in COVID. The question is that that last bit that we've seen in the last year has accelerated forward. And that maybe was some wasteful spending and, um, and, and some uh, printing of money that maybe didn't have to happen. Um, huh. and so that's what they're asking themselves now. 
and, and there's a little battle going on in Washington behind the scenes, uh, those that are fiscally more responsible those versus those that fiscally um, want to you know, provide this enormous safety net to a wider, um, to a wider audience uh, that's going to cost a lot in terms of uh, building up our deficits and, and creating a problem for the next generation that's going to have to pay off these debts and live with the ramifications of these decisions. So it's yeah. a tough question. It's a policy decision uh, <laughs> it, as opposed to a market decision. Yeah, who'd want to be a central bank governor, quite frankly. Um, I want to talk to you about the future of transport because I was looking at your portfolio and as you said, you sort of coined the, the recovery trade. I know you invested in um, container shipping, which has been, I'm sure, a fabulous trade throughout this um, throughout this uh, you know throughout this period and this recovery period. But you also invested in Hertz, the car rental company, and um, Europe Car. So I I want to not only talk to you about sort of the pickup in value and recovery trade, but also project forward. What does the future of transport look like, and what do you see in terms of value for for these particular um, firms and companies? Well, well, first of all, start with airlines for just a second. So we think that air travel is going to come ripping back. Uh, In the coming weeks, the United States is going to open up to 33 Mm. countries, international travel. And we think the business travel is going to come back in a very big way in the coming year. And so we're very bullish on business travel. Despite the flexibility of work from home or work from anywhere, um, we think business travel comes ripping back. Uh, We think with that, um, hotels will benefit from that, uh, not only from personal travel and leisure travel, but also for the business travel coming back for these business hotels. So we're bullish, we're bullish hospitality, we're bullish airlines. Um, as it relates to, you know, Hertz and Avis and, 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 and Europe car, you know, you, you pick up your phone and you can order your Uber. How about picking up your phone and ordering your rental car because you want to drive yourself. And, you know, the, uh, the flexibility and mobility um, and the investment in mobility by these rental car companies is, is staggering. And, and so we think all the rental car companies are tremendously undervalued. Uh, Volkswagen is buying Europe Car, the number one rental car company in the country, in, in, in Europe rather. Um, Marathon is the second largest shareholder of that company behind uh, Volkswagen. And uh, we're, we're very bullish on, 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 on that opportunity. Hertz, we think, has 30 to 40% upside from here, just to catch up in terms of multiple to where Avis is, and we're bullish on the whole sector here in the United States in terms of rental car because of this advancement of mobility. And then when you talk about shipping, shipping's a problem, right? So, you know, you you think about the ports and how they're all backed up, but how about the truckers? You know, you look at the UK, and I I mentioned uh, this just recently, that there's 18,000 less truckers in the UK transporting petrol from the ports to the stations versus where you were prior to Brexit. And here in the United States, just look at Long Beach in LA, for instance. In Long Beach in LA, on a typical day, you have 9,000 truckers coming to the ports to pick up goods to distribute them throughout the country. But there used to be 15,000, and now there's 9,000. That's a 40% decline in truckers. And so you can open up those ports 24 hours a day and allow for transports to come in and out, which is the measure the administration has um, advanced. Finally done. But where are you going to get your labor? So what we really have is a tremendous labor store shortage where we need it for logistics and just-in-time delivery. So 
It's impacting everything. It's impacting everything from Apple's ability to deliver chips and chip manufacturing to being able to get, hopefully, your you know Christmas gifts um, you know come this December. So um, the impact is wide and 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 and, and vast. And it, it's everything from your lawn furniture to lumber to television to chips. And it's at the point where you're flying chips on cargo planes just to get it there in time. So you can see how inflationary uh, that is because the cost is 10 times to fly it than to ship it. So it all has to be passed through and it all is being passed through and it's a problem. Never mind it transitory cookie jar. I think we need a bath or a swimming pool, quite frankly, because when you put it like that, it's clearly going to be around for um, a lot longer than uh, Fed officials hope. Bruce, great to chat to you as always. Bruce Richards, the chairman and CEO of Marathon Asset Management. And I have plenty more to discuss with you. So please come back again and talk to us. Julie, thank you. Thank you. Okay, still to come here on First Move. Can't wait to gobble up a turkey this Christmas. Good luck getting one. We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stocks enjoying a Tuesday trading torrent with financial and energy shares making fresh upside moves. The S&P 500 now less than one and a half percent away from records. We can call it a purple patch in the pumpkin patch. At this rate, we'll hit all time highs before Halloween. Shares of Robinhood are moving higher too. The SEC out with a report on the meme trading mania we saw earlier this year. It suggests regulators should take a closer look at how popular trading apps function, including how Robinhood is able to offer free trading to consumers via its payment for order flow relationship with market makers like Citadel Securities. The report, though, didn't include specific policy recommendations. Early crunch on Christmas as global supply chain disruptions continue. The Christmas tree could become the next item caught in the fallout from massive shipping backlogs, as David Culver reports. With Americans starting their holiday shopping, whether or not they tick off one essential item on their list depends on what's happening thousands of miles away. Here in southern China, workers in this factory twist, pull, cut, and crimp together shredded plastic strips creating branches for artificial Christmas trees destined for the U.S. And these are the finished product. They do about 500 trees a day in this factory alone. Then they're packaged up and shipped out. But in this case, they have nowhere to go. The reason? Because many ships went to the United States this year, got stuck at the ports and did not return, so we are waiting for the ships to return. Our factory's goods are therefore staying here and cannot be shipped out. James Lee says his factory has a backlog of about 150 containers, worth about 3 million U.S. dollars, just waiting to be shipped out. It's led the company to rent storage space right here in China. This warehouse has two floors just like this, packed with trees. The inventory that normally this time of year would already be in the U.S., well ahead of Christmas. Lee warns if the shipping backlog continues. Many consumers may not be able to buy Christmas trees at Christmas this year. CNN followed the jammed supply chain from Lee's factory in China to where most of the goods usually end up, the National Tree Company in New Jersey, a large wholesaler of holiday decor that sells to retailers like Target and Amazon. The company's CEO, Chris Butler, 
blames the ongoing global supply chain crisis for the shipping backlog. So COVID created some of the shortages. Um, COVID, post-COVID has created this enormous post-COVID demand. It's in turn jamming up ports like these in Southern California, with a recent flyover showing some 60 container ships sitting anchored off the L.A. coast. Every day is a fight to get containers. So we're fighting against toy manufacturers, electronic manufacturers, other manufacturers to get the containers, and we're having to pay a lot more for those containers. The company says it's paying 10 times more this year to bring their products across the ocean compared to last year. Because of that, we're having to pass on some of those price increases to the consumer. The result? A 20 to 25 percent increase in the price of artificial trees this year, if you are lucky enough to still find one by Thanksgiving. David Culver, CNN, Huizhou, China. It's not just the Christmas tree that could be missing this year. What you put on the table is also being affected by the supply chain issues and labor shortages. Anna Stewart is at a turkey farm in Essex in southern England for us too. Wow, Anna. And you're appropriately dressed as well, coordinating with your turkeys. Talk to me about, talk to me about the challenges other than being pecked. Be careful. <laughs> Let's just say live reporting here is really very challenging. But this is a sector that has had issues for over a year now. Huge shortage of workers. And of course, it's reaching a real crunch point as we approach Christmas. Um, about 15% of the workforce is frankly just missing. There aren't enough people to pluck these turkeys. And frankly, I might start plucking them myself if they keep pecking me. Um, but it's no surprise, really, if you consider that 60% of the poultry workforce in the UK came from Europe. So a result of the pandemic plus Brexit and that many have left and they're simply not coming back. And this issue here within the poultry sector has been compounded by all sorts of shortages throughout the food and drink supply chain, which is what the CEO of the Food and Drink Federation told me earlier. The shortages are the result of labour shortages. Uh, As I say, we haven't got enough workers at various pinch points. So we haven't got enough in abattoirs. We haven't got enough in, uh, famously, in HGV drivers. We haven't got enough in certain factory roles and we don't have enough in hospitality. Um, The UK government has in recent weeks issued 5,000 temporary visas for truck drivers, 5,500 visas for poultry workers. Not clear yet how many of those have actually been taken up. But frankly, it is too late for poultry workers who work in Christmas turkeys. These guys were hatched in Easter. So of course they had to predict what their staffing would be for November and December many, many months ago. And the big worry is that it won't just be this Christmas, but it's not looking very good for next Christmas either. Julia? Wow. So what's it actually going to mean then? Is it going to mean shortages this Christmas and if not higher prices? Exactly. There will not be as many British turkeys on the shelves. There are hopes they can import more. But then you have to consider all the other supply chain shortages we're seeing when it comes to shipping. And the costs are going up. People are having to pay people that pluck turkeys or pick fruit a lot more just to get the workforce that they need so that their crop or their birds aren't simply wasted. So it's going to feed into the wider inflation story. Uh, And this is just one snapshot, really, isn't it, of a huge problem facing the UK and right around the world. But in the UK, it's, of course, been exacerbated by Brexit. And what's in your pockets? Because those turkeys really want to get whatever's in your pocket. Is there some food in there or something? These turkeys... (laughs) These turkeys are great fun. They are very vocal. If you clap, wow. I mean, in some ways they're a great audience, but, um, but they are quite pecky. Get your own round of applause. 
That was fabulous. Might I suggest, and I've just been Googling. Oh, there you go. Might, might I suggest you add tryptophobia to your CV in future, which I believe is a fear of turkeys. I think I'm developing this fear of turkeys right now. Thanks, Julia. Another round of applause, please, for Anna. <laughs> Fabulous. Anna <laughs> Stewart at a turkey farm in Essex. Thank you. Good luck. My IFP has dropped. <laughs> we lost her there. She needs to make a run for it. All right, after the break, when two of the hottest worlds in investments collide, ETFs and Bitcoin. ProShares is here to talk us through what's taking place today. Stay with us. Shares ringing the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange a few moments ago and an exciting day for crypto fans and investors looking to ride the Bitcoin bandwagon without the hassle of buying directly. In case you're wondering what the US regulator, the SEC, has to say about the Bitcoin futures ETF. Well, there's a note of caution. Investing has Investing has risks. Surprise, surprise. Effectively, though, giving the go-ahead to ProShares and the companies following it. Simeon Hyman is Head of Investment Strategy at ProShares and joins us now. Simeon, great to have you on the show. Um, It's being talked about as a huge moment for the crypto space and a sort of endorsement, perhaps, by the regulators. How do you view this moment? Look, we're really proud to bring the first Bitcoin-linked ETF to the U.S. marketplace This is a great belt and suspenders suspenders combination of the regulated futures market and a plain old 1940 Security Act ETF that puts Bitcoin as a possible exposure into people's regular brokerage accounts. There are a lot of people out there who don't understand the exchanges. They're often an unregulated place. You need keys, warm key, cold key, and this just makes it really, really simple for folks to have the opportunity to add this exposure in the way they would you know, have a ETF for any other asset class, stock or bond. You know, I think people are, most people are, to some degree are getting to grips with Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency or a digital asset. But in this case, then we have to overlay that this is a future based on Bitcoin and then it's an exchange traded fund. Simeon, can you help us understand and put this in English? What's the difference here between an exchange traded fund based on Bitcoin itself and a future? Because it matters for investors looking to get access to this. It does matter and it's important. So the futures are a marketplace where investors speak of what the price of Bitcoin will be in the future. I know that sounds tautological, but the most important piece of this (laughs) is that in many ways, there are many experts who see that futures market as being the better place for price discovery, the better place for information to be reflected immediately in those future prices. As an example, the CME futures, that's what we're trading here, the CME futures actually trade more volume than the largest U.S. Bitcoin exchange. So if you will, this is a a robust feature, not a bug. Uh, And of course, putting that then in the ETF wrapper, the ETF instrument, just makes it uh, a much easier way for folks to be able to access this exposure. And we think there are a lot of people who've been waiting for this. Do you think it will take some of the volatility out of the underlying Bitcoin price to be 
a hedging tool perhaps. So if you're long Bitcoin or you hold Bitcoin and you see some volatility ahead or it starts to get rocky in terms of volatility, rather than selling the Bitcoin itself, you could perhaps go into the market and say, look, I'm going to sell some of this ETF and, and hedge my position. Do you expect to see people doing that too? This is a trading tool as well as an investment opportunity. That's true. So another important instrument in the ecosystem, if you will, I hate that word, but I'll have to use it because people kind of accepted it. But another tool like BITO does bring more opportunities for a wide range of investors, both buy and hold folks and traders to express their views. And we think this can't be but a healthy thing for the overall ecosystem in terms of the ability for people to indicate what they think collectively of the direction of Bitcoin. Is the risk there, though, that perhaps when Bitcoin's going down, this could overshoot to the downside? And likewise, when Bitcoin's going up, this product could overshoot to the upside. Investors need to be aware of, of some of the challenges here, too. So the good news is, if you look at the way a future strategy would have behaved over the last several years since the CME futures have been in place, they track Bitcoin really, really well. So, you know, the... The volatility of, of, well, so as an example, if you look in the month of September as just a snapshot, the average daily difference between that near month and the next month contract on any given day was only about 20 basis points. So there's not that much going on here. But what I would say is Bitcoin itself has its own volatility. And to some extent, again, it's a feature, not a bug in the sense that Bitcoin can be a powerful diversifier in investors' portfolios. No one's saying it should be, you know, three quarters of your portfolio, but a small amount of a thing that doesn't behave like other things, that was Nobel Prize winning language, a thing that doesn't behave like (laughs) other things can be really invaluable in your portfolio, whether it's an inflation hedge, an alternative currency, or virtual gold. People are describing it in several different ways, but it really can be an important diversifier. And now you can slot it right in there with the rest of your investments in that same account in the same way that that many investors are familiar with. How much does it cost versus just buying the underlying asset? Because there is the complication perhaps of people opening up another trading account, a Coinbase account, for example, if they want to invest in the underlying. If they're already investing in stocks and ETFs, then this gives them access, as we've already discussed. But there's an additional cost for that, too. Yes, so there's always a management fee with an ETF. Ours is 95 basis points, which we think compares quite reasonably with all the other ways that you might look to invest in Bitcoin. Remember that that number you see in the corner of your screen on TV, that thing is uninvestable. You have to pick some way to transact in it and there's a cost with all. uh, And we certainly think that uh, our value proposition is a robust, robust one. One of the big questions I think that's being asked now is how long does it take for the regulators like the SEC to be on board with an ETF, as we've discussed, that rather than tracking futures, is tied to the underlying itself, to Bitcoin. How far in the future do you think that is before we're having this yeah, discussion I, I, with you launching? Uh, we don't know. Uh, what we do know is what you know, the SEC has said publicly and what they've said publicly about the benefits of the futures market and its regulation are certainly consistent with what we see as the uh, important value of a futures-based approach. But we really don't have a crystal ball with regards to other opportunities in the future.
years? We just don't know. <laughs> I'm just pushing. He actually just said on an alternative um, channel, Gary Gensler, uh, the SEC chief, that um, this sector, futures, has been uh, regulated by the commodities futures regulators for a really long time. So he's certainly trying to distance himself from uh, the timing on that question when, uh, when pushed. So it could be a while, I guess, is the answer. We just don't know. But I, I Do see Gensler's head in the corner of my eye as well. <laughs> I, 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 we really don't know. We really don't know. With his fingers but crossed. But look, we have, a, we, we have a history of innovation at the firm. We will be, you know, we're obviously continuously monitoring that maturation and evolution of the spot market itself. And we're right. obviously closely attuned to the evolution of the regulatory environment. And the, should there be opportunities for us to bring other solutions to investors, uh, you'll be sure to hear from us. There you go. That was the corporate response. And we thank you for it. Simeon, great to have you with us. <laughs> thank you very Simeon much. Simeon and the head of investment strategy at ProShares. Thank you for making time for us today. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, what on earth is a gorilla doing facing off with a wool on Wall Street? The whole thing, completely bananas. We'll explain more after the break. Welcome back to First Move. And finally, here on First Move, a new arrival on Wall Street is leaving tourists a little perplexed. This giant gorilla statue is a marketing stunt by a Spanish social media network pointing out wealth inequality and how Wall Street, in their view, has, quote, gone bananas. And in case you're wondering, the fruit will be distributed to food banks afterwards. So a bull versus a gorilla and lots of bananas. I think there's some logic in there somewhere. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, that will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages shortly. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.